0: What a just beautiful set of songs, and just reminding us of the truth of the gospel and how Christ died for our sins. And what appreciate we appreciate that. Thank you so much, uh, worship team, for leading us in those songs of praise. Focus on the truth of uh, the purity and the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A wonderful uh, time of worship and song. We continue our worship now in the study of God's word. As we look to the book of Titus. So, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Titus, Titus chapter two, verse eleven to fifteen is where we'll be this morning. Titus 2, 11 to 15. And this morning, uh, though our text will be primarily from 11 to 15, I want to read all of chapter 2. This will be the last time we're in chapter 2. We're going to go to chapter 3 next time. Uh, And so... Uh, to give us one last opportunity to look at the whole context of this, cha- of this chapter, and particularly the context of these verses that we're going to look at today, uh, I want to read chapter 2, all of it. So it's been familiar with to you, and I trust it's been, uh, these words have struck home for you. In the Word of God, we read these words from the Apostle Paul to Titus. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate. Dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself For us, to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We pray that as we preach your word this morning, hear your word this morning, may your spirit. Cause your word to go forth. Father, may you cause us to hear exactly that which you wish us to hear in your word, to understand this, this text, this uh, key text in the book of Titus. Help us understand its, uh, not only its meaning, but to understand its significance for how we ought to conduct ourselves in this age. Lord, we pray that, you would, uh, that your spirit would cause us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. Lord, we pray that as we study your word, may we grow in a greater appreciation as we renew our look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you cause us to love you more as we understand how much you have loved us. Lord, we pray these things for your glory, for the building furtherance, of the building up of your church, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well. As many of you may recall, at the beginning of our series on Titus, I began with a very practical yet theologically significant question and I want to and kind of as we 're arriving at the end of a, of a section where chapter two is the end of a section, and before we get to the next one, I want to go back to that question because this particular text that we look at this morning helps us to answer the question. The theological question, is, if you don 't recall as i 'll put it up here for you, is this: If we are saved by grace. Through faith alone in Jesus Christ, and we are. Then, are we as Christians obligated to obey the moral law of God? And it's a, kind of a you know it's a it's a bit of a tricky question. It depends on how much sleep you got last night, uh, or just how astute you are. But in our efforts to defend uh, the salvation that is by grace alone through faith alone, we might answer this question by answering no. No, we are not obligated to obey the moral law of God in order to be saved. And that statement by itself is true. However, it's not really an answer to this question. One really can answer the answer to this question is the answer, yes. Yes, we are obligated to obey the moral law of God, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. That's a subtle difference there. We as Christians, as followers of Christ, are obligated to obey God's law, the moral law of God. We're to follow Christ's commands because we have been saved by him. In fact, that's what he teaches us in the Great Commission. As we're disciples of Jesus Christ, when he told us to make disciples, what did he tell us to do? To not baptize people, but then to teach them to when they feel like it, keep the commandments of God? No, it's teach them to keep the commandments of God, to keep, to keep his teachings. And that's what we are called to do. We are to be, as Christians, we are followers of Christ. We are to follow him. We are to obey his word, obey his commands as we come to understand them in the scriptures. In fact, we are to do so because, not because we're out of a, necessarily out of a debt, though we do have a debt to him, not because we have to, but because we love him. Jesus, uh, Jesus says in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We as Christians are obligated to keep the moral law of God because we love him, because we understand what he has done for us, that he saved us. That, in short, is really the theme of today's passage. This is, that is, we obey Christ and pursue holiness because the grace of God has appeared to save us. From our sins. And in Titus chapter 2, which we've been looking at, Paul has, has exhorted Titus, first and foremost, to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Things that, are, that fit, that flow out of, that are consistent with believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he went on to proceed in verses 2 through 10 to explain the conduct that is befitting sound doctrine. And for whether no matter who you are, whether you're an older man, an older woman, a younger man, a younger woman, or a slave no matter your stage of life, no matter your circumstances in life, we are all to conduct ourselves in a manner befitting of the gospel of Jesus Christ, befitting of Christ, befitting of sound doctrine that we have believed upon. Why are we to live according to such, sac- to, according to such godliness? You ever sometimes teach a, a child you know, to do this or to do that? Sometimes you know, one of the first, first things I ask afterwards is what? Why, why? I hear, I've been hearing that question a lot these days, and I, sometimes I'm running out of answers. But uh, why? Because God said so, you know. And, no, because uh, why? The answer to why we are to conduct ourselves in a way befitting of sound doctrine is because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And here, in verse eleven to fifteen, we find the reason for such godly conduct. Why we're to conduct ourselves in these, in these ways? And the answer is because the grace of God appeared and saved us. That's uh, that's going to be where we're going to go this morning. That's where we'll find in this passage. It's, I think it's a it's a, for Christians we get this. We should understand this. Why should we live like Christ? Because he came and saved us. That's why we should live like him. We want to re- to show our love for him, to honor him, to glorify him. And so and that's why we manifest conduct befitting a sound doctrine. Now, even as we think about that, it's all by the it's all by grace, isn't it? It's not like we can just go out after this and say, "I want to try harder." Well, we should try harder, but we should depend harder upon the Lord. If we could, if we could depend harder, depend upon the Lord, that the Spirit would, that His Spirit would fill us, that He would cause us to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit and His desires for us. So, we're going to as, as motivation for us. Then Paul gives Titus, who then will give the Cretans, four kind of aspects of the grace of God, four, I'm going to call it four gifts of the grace of God that we find in this text that motivate the Christian community toward godly living. These four aspects of the grace of God should motivate us to live lives in a manner worthy of Christ, in a manner that's consistent with the sound doctrine. So, okay, let's take a look then at these four points, these four aspects, four gifts of the grace of God. Grace really just means God's gift to us, really God's favor towards us, what we don't earn or deserve. There are four aspects, four gifts of this grace of God that we receive in salvation. And that is the first point, Is the most uh, obvious point, is that the grace of God gives salvation. And we've run in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now we briefly looked at this verse on Easter Sunday just a few weeks back. And the same key points that I made then are the same key points we can make today. I would point out that the, you just notice the conjunction that it begins with. The word for indicates that all that follows in 11 through 14 provides the reasoning for the church to conduct themselves in godliness according to the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. This is the, the motivation. This is why we ought to conduct ourselves in fitting sound doctrine. And the main subject of this verse, and the main subject of the whole passage, in fact, is the grace of God. The grace of God. Now, we know what grace is. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's God's gift. God's something we don't earn or deserve. That's what grace is. But here, the grace of God is, a, is, a, is really a word that describes Jesus Christ. In the context of this verse, the grace of God is a description of our Savior, Jesus. He is the one who comes bringing salvation to all men. So we could almost just put here, when you see the grace of God, just replace that with Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Jesus Christ is the personification of the grace of God. Uh, Brother Albert, uh, Elder Albert Lee read for us even in the call worship from John 1, 9 to 14. And I want to just include that verse here. In 1, 14, we read this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John makes really clear there that Jesus, when he came, when the word came, he became flesh. And when he walked among us, we saw glory. We saw the glory of God, a glory that is characterized by grace and truth. You know, the world today, sometimes we're still looking for truth. Uh, all sorts of discussions about uh, alternative facts. What is truth, you know? There's still the great pilot question. What is truth? Man, well, man looks for truth everywhere. We look for it, and we think we can find it in science alone. You know, you think about the March for Science recently. But if we want to find truth as finite men, you want to find grace as finite people, you just no need to look no further than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. And we read on in verse 16 and for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You want to realize grace and truth? It is through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. God's grace, this grace was realized particularly when Jesus Christ appeared. And when we look, remember when we looked at this word, this is the Greek word from which we get our English word, epiphany, a manifestation of a divine being. The word was used in secular Greek language of the intervention of the gods or divine beings to bring divine help. And you know, in our English word, when we see the word appear, we just think show up. That is an appearance. But this word is not merely divine appearance. This word is divine assistance. When you need help and you call for someone, say, oh, I need help. I need some strong man. Leo, come to my aid. And Leo comes because he's strong. And he comes and he says, oh, I'm here. And, and, I, and they say, okay, I've got to go, Pastor Henry, later. And he just takes off. Well, he appeared. Well, what use is that if he doesn't help me? He's got to assist me. This is the divine appearance. is a, a divine appearance to assist, to aid. And what is it that we need to help with? We need to help with our salvation. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. None of us could, aim for, could earn salvation on our own. In fact, all we did each and every day when we sinned is we heaped more and more condemnation upon ourselves. We were digging ourselves deeper and deeper into the grave, into hell, because of our sin. That's, that is what we were doing. But God, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men, we find. And for this, we need to be grateful. We are grateful. And this grace, though, is not just limited. God's grace is not just limited to believers. We read the verse, it brings salvation to all men. And what makes God's grace so amazing that he appeared to bring salvation, not just for Israel, not just for the elect. He brought salvation to all men. Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose from the grave to provide salvation for all men. And that means all mankind. But don't misunderstand. I'm not teaching universalism. That is, not all men are saved. While the provision of salvation is for all men, the application of salvation is limited to the elect of God, those whom God in his sovereignty in eternity past has chosen for salvation because of his grace. It's all of grace. And Christ on the cross accomplished the salvation of the elect but make no mistake, we don't want to miss the force of this phrase. He, Jesus Christ appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He, may, he appeared to bring salvation to all men. And we could look at passages like 1 Timothy 2, 4 and 6, or 1 Timothy four ten. But there's no simpler text than John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. God sent His Son not to judge the world when He came. God sent His Son to save the world. You know, to tell you the truth, if, we, st- if you could just, we could just stop and grasp this truth of the grace of God brings salvation, gives salvation. And meditate on this truth. And we would, that should be enough for us to reason enough for us to live in accordance with that which is fitting for sound doctrine. That we should pursue godly lives because Christ saved us. If you have salvation through Christ. A salvation that is all of grace. It's not because you showed up here this morning. It's not because you prayed a prayer it's not because you are going to do good works or you've done good works. It's not because of what a great family you're going to raise. It's not because of what wonderful Sunday school lessons, what kind of, uh, how many people you led to Christ. None of those reasons are the reasons why he saved you. It is all of grace. It's purely because of God and his love, his sovereign love. And if you think about this, we just meditate on this truth. It should be, overwhelm us. How can we not want to live for God? Because he provided his son to save us. And when he died on the cross, he saved us. This is the reason for why. This should be motivation for us to, to live in a godly way and live in accordance with Christ. But if this was not sufficient for us, in verse 12, we find a second gift of the grace of God that motivates us to godliness. And we find in verse 12 that the grace of God gives instruction. it gives us instruction. In verse 12, we read, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. When Christ came to this world, he came teaching. He came teaching his disciples. In fact, when he, began, he was baptized, what really began at that point was that he started teaching He started teaching the truth of the gospel, the kingdom of God. And his appearance back then, his appearance then, as it was full of instruction to disciples, and it continues to instruct his disciples today. This is a present tense part. it's instructing us even, instructing the Cretans and and Titus and Paul, and instructs us today. The us here refers to the Christians Paul's talking about him, all Christians, himself, Titus, the Cretan church, and all the believers as well. And what's kind of neat about this is that this word instructing is not the common word for teach. It's not like it's saying this is, well, these are the lessons or these are the points that he wants you to, to learn. But this idea of teaching is a word that is used of raising children. That is, we could translate this as bring us up, raising us up, as if in children, or ESV translation puts this, he's training us. When you see this word instructing, think a parent raising children. You know, wouldn't it be nice, parents, if you could just simply just tell your children, now be kind. And from that point on, they, okay, and then you get make, make sure they repeat it to you. Now repeat after me. Be kind, okay, good. Be kind, and then from that point on, they would always be kind. If only head knowledge was enough to make instruction, right, parents? But it doesn't work like that, right? To be to, as we have to train them, instruct them. It goes beyond conveying facts or teaching a lesson. Because it we involves encouragement, persuasion, practice, discipline. There's repetition, suggestions, practical examples. Well, you can be kind by sharing your toy with your sibling. Yes, rewards and discipline. All used up in training a child. And funny thing is, well, not so funny really, but the Lord uses these same things in our own life, doesn't he? To train us up. He disciplines us, raises us up. And we are his children. And training believers now that's what Jesus Christ, the grace of God, when He appeared, He's doing. He's training us up. His appearance trains us up. What is it, particularly, that trains us up in? Well, it's stated negatively and positively. First of all, we're trained. He got the grace of God. It gives instruction to us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And this, we are simply. To, he's training us to renounce and say no to sin. That's what deny is to renounce, or I like to simply the simple way of saying, just say no to it. To say no. We are not to live a sinful lifestyle. A life of sin, or really our life before Christ, is characterized by these two terms, ungodliness and worldly desires. These are characteristics of a life without Christ. Ungodliness refers to a life that is devoid of God, a life that has no reverence for a creator, no fear of holy God. Such a one basically lives as if there is no God. And you know, you know, I all know people like this. We've met people like this who say, see, they, they are, they've learned everything, they've been everywhere, and, they've, and they come to great certainty that there is no God. Or even worse are those who are, say they believe in God, but their lives reflect a life that, as if they, there is no God. They, live, they, say, they may say they believe in Christ, but they don't even follow any of His commands they do not worship him on a regular basis. They do not even, they do not even try to, <clears throat> to read what he has to say to them in his word. Such attitude is the mark of an unbeliever, a person who, doesn't, who does not live as if God exists. Paul writes, that this is, uh, and Paul writes that for such people, such unbelievers, the wrath of God is upon them. Verse Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that suppressing the truth is, real, is profound. When you're an ungodly person, you live as if God doesn't exist, you really want to suppress any truth that God exists. You don't want to do anything that says, no, that's, that's God. No, we've got to have some other explanation that where, we, where God is out of the equation. You know, that's why I believe it's behind even this whole, uh, just a whole push in our world, even just think about the separation of, of church and state and church and religion. You know, that a lot of people push the, they just kind of want to take religion out of everything. You, even, I just read some news headline about how even uh, military chaplains are, can't pray in Jesus' name. <laughs> <I'm> like, <what? laughs> I mean, oh man, the, 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 the foolishness that a world leads to when they want to deny the existence of God. Anyways, we move on. I'm going to just, you know, uh, dig- digressing a little bit. But also what characterizes our life before Christ, not only in God, but worldly desires. Our life was characterized by worldly desires. Those are basically sinful desires. As John put it in 1 John two sixteen. here he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, world in that sinful connotation is really just is the opposite of the Father or the Father who is in heaven. So worldly is opposite from heavenly, fatherly. Worldly can be trans-earthly. Our thoughts, our desires are worldly, are earthly. But the thoughts and desires we should have are the fatherly desires, heavenly desires, spiritual desires. But like ungodliness, worldly desires mark our life before the regenerating power of Christ. We desired after the things of this world, the things of our flesh, dozens of our eyes, the things that would made us feel good, the boast about ourselves. Later on in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes of how we were like this. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts. That's the same word as desires here. And pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful hating one another. As brothers and sisters, as those who have been set free from worldly desires and lusts, Christ is training us to say no to those desires. That's our old life apart from Christ. Those are the things that led us to death. We're to say no in the power of Christ to those things. While we dwell in our fleshly bodies, we we continue to bear a sinful nature. And that leads us that leads us to some times where we are resisting and fighting against temptation. But Christ came so that he might instruct us to say no to ungodliness, to say no to worldly desires, to not give in to what feels right. What feels right is not always right. What feels right in, a, in, a, in our to our fleshly desires is actually sin. It's wrong. Now as to what So not only is he training us negatively to deny on God's world desires, but he's also training us, instructing us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It could be said that of these three uh, phrases, that basically uh, they describe life in relation to self, to people, and to God, respectively. Sensibly is the key word of this whole chapter, Remember? This appears four times in our verse, verse 1 to 10. It appears the fifth time now here. That's half the times it's it's used, I believe, by Paul. The word describes one who shows the the proper restraint in all things. Translated self-control often in some other translations. But it's a self-control in our thoughts and judgment. It's a self-control that leads to behavior that is appropriate to every situation. Instead of us being controlled by our desires. So I couldn't help, but that was just what I just felt like... it. To be sensible is one who has their desires controlled by the Holy Spirit. Righteously refers to a life that is marked by justice, fairness toward others. That is, we treat others rightly. We do not try to cheat them. We do not try to rob them. We treat others with integrity. We do unto others as we would have them do unto us. We love them as our neighbor. These are all righteous, it reflects a righteous life, living we also to live, Christ, The grace of God teaches us also to live godly. This is the complete opposite of ungodliness. It is a life that reveres God, that seeks to please God in all one's ways. We live life aware that God exists and God, God loves us and God wants to, us to live in a certain way. Christ came to bring us salvation, to train us so that we might say no to our sinful desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. And that's what we find detailed For us in verses 1 to 10, all those practical encouragements, exhortations that we find there. The grace of God gives us instruction. And for these reasons, if the the grace of God instructs us to live this way, shouldn't we want to live this way? Yes, we should. Thirdly, we learn that the grace of God also gives us another gift. The grace of God gives us hope. Uh, I was tempted to just give the title, The Grace of God Gives Us Expectation, to keep the kind of parallel nature, but I just like the word hope. It's simple. The grace of God gives us hope. Verse 13, we find another participle, um, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Functionally, this verse describes the life that we are to live in verse 12, that sensible, righteous, godly life. Such a life looks for the hope of Christ's return. This verb, looking, can mean to welcome someone, or it can mean to await for someone. And that's the latter idea is what we find here in this text. Idea of waiting for someone, waiting for something that is still future. And when we wait for something, that, that as we're waiting for this thing that is still a future, it affects how we live now. You all know the experience of waiting for something, expecting something good that's going to happen to you. You know, maybe today you're all expecting, you're excited because you get to hang out with that special friend. Anybody expecting that during lunch today? Well, go ask somebody, okay? That's all of you. Go ask somebody, special friend. Gonna, you know, and you're going to hang out together. You're going to go to enjoy some, you know, eat a lemonade and, you know, get some of the food. It's going to be wonderful, you know. It's going to be wonderful. Get you can get some boba afterwards. You expect that's exciting right and so it makes change how you how you live right it affects how you know you're, you're planning you already got a plan where you're going to go what you're going to order which who you're going to you, you're going to pay for him or her right and then and it affects how you, you're you know you're thinking about such things or maybe perhaps you're expecting some of you're expecting a little further ahead you say oh man i'm expecting i can't wait i warriors round two this week right <laughs> anybody expecting that some of you are that should affect how you live right you already know what dates are going to play I have no idea, but you're expecting it probably Tuesday, Thursday, so you make sure, oh, Tuesday, Thursday, no meetings, because the game's on, right? Game one and two, uh, whoever it's going to be, Clippers or uh, I think Jazz or something like that. Um, so that will affect, you'll you schedule it because you're excited about that, or perhaps maybe this afternoon, you're going you're to start, vac- you're going to go on vacation, you're going to go to the, the happiest place on earth. Right? So you're going to go do that this, today. You're going to head on out. Well, that should affect how you, you, know, how you live, too. You're going to, you will be prepared. And, and when we're expecting things like this, good things, or kind of happy things that we uh, think are going to happen, we, it affects our attitude, doesn't it? It affects even how we live. When, when things happen that are kind of not so good, it's like, oh, no big deal. Oh, man, I'm going to have lunch soon with my friend. Oh, no big deal. I'm going to get to watch the Warriors, and they're going to kill the other team. It doesn't matter who they play. Perhaps you're expecting, hey, I don't care. I'm going on vacation soon. You can tell me I'm a servant stank, and I don't don't matter to me. I'm going to the happiest place on earth. (laughs) So it affects how we live. Now that's a good expectation. How expectation affects how we live. But how much more when the expectation is of the greatest thing that will ever happen in this earth, when Christ returns. Are you expecting that? That should affect how we live. It should make us like, man, it, with bad things happen here on earth. They hate us because of the gospel. They hate you because of the gospel. They, you, you're going through trials because of sin. It affects how we handle those weights, the burdens of this life. It doesn't remove trials. It, it, it doesn't remove, trials, doesn't remove or wrestle with sin but we, knowing that Christ is going to return makes what we endure here on earth worth it. It will pale in comparison because of the glory when he returns. I got so excited I lost my place in my notes. Where am I? Yeah, <laughs> yeah there we go. Uh, the grace of God gives hope. There's a second coming of Christ that's talked about. Paul talks about all over in... in um, in the pastoral epistles, several places he describes it. I'm kind of just going to, as a side note, but it's a very significant theological note I want to make, is that in, here in verse 13, it says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, there are some who would say that really it's the appearing of the glory of two people. Is this two people that's referred to here, or is this one person? Is it the glory of our great God and the glory of our Savior, Christ Jesus? Or is this saying the appearance of the glory of our one person, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus? I think as Christians, we would understand this, so yeah, it's, uh, that Jesus Christ is God and Savior. But what does the text say? And the text does say that. It does say that Jesus Christ here is both Savior and God. He is both Savior and God. This is one of the clear statements of the deity of Christ in the Bible. Uh, there's, a, there's a grammar rule that, that just shows this clearly where there's an article, that mod, a single article that modifies the two, two nouns connected by a, a, a conjunction. And basically those two nouns refer to the one and the same. And so when the God and Savior here, it refers to one and only Jesus Christ. In fact, it's kind of really neat, just as an aside, we, we take this for granted, we've all believed this uh, to be true, but in the book of Titus, Paul makes special efforts to show that Christ is both Savior and God. Look, at, look with me, just, I'm, I know it's kind of a little, it's just a little off the subject, but I want to show you, because this is just neat, this is just neat theologically. And wherever, throughout Titus, in every three chap, all three chapters, Paul will describe God as our Savior, and then a verse or two later he's going to shout Christ is our savior. So look at Titus 1:3 it says the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our savior. So God is our savior. God the Father is our savior. To Titus my true child in the common faith grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our savior. So God's our savior, Christ Jesus is our savior. Now look at Titus chapter 2 verse 10 and 13. Again we see that we are to adorn the doctrine of God our savior in every respect. And then verse 13, which is our verse here, talks about our Savior, Christ Jesus. So God's our Savior, Christ Jesus is our Savior. And then Titus 3, 4, chapter 3, verse 4 and 6. When the kindness of God our Savior in his love for mankind appeared. That's talking about the great kindness of God the Father, right? who is our Savior. And then verse 6, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul has made very clear in this this book of Titus that God is our Savior and Christ our Savior. And then on top of that, Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. So, I mean, I know that we're just preaching to the choir here. But just kind of for you to know that this is what the scriptures teach. Give you a little uh, encouragement in your faith. The grace of God, but the point of application is the grace of God has given us hope. An expectation of something greater and more glorious than anything we can experience in this life. Not your date this afternoon. Not the Warriors championship we're going to see. Not your vacation of a lifetime that's going to have this afternoon. But it's the most wonderful thing that we're all going to be eyewitnesses of. And that's the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ. Full of His grace and truth is going to be manifested. And He's going to be the one who we long to see all our lives. The one who makes everything right that's wrong with this world. It will be wonderful. It will be wonderful. And that should motivate us to live for Christ, to conduct ourselves in godliness. Because the grace of God has appeared. Uh, lastly, our fourth and final point, and the fourth gift of the grace of God, we find in verse 14 that the grace of God gave himself. The gave himself. If I want to keep my, my pa- pattern, I was going to say the grace of God gave, gives passion gives us passion, a passion. But we read in verse 14. Paul reminds here to, to Titus and the Crean believers why Christ should be the most precious person in our lives, why his coming should matter more than anything else, because this is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, here we find a clear statement of the work of Christ on the cross. He gave himself. Christ gave himself for us. He gave himself on behalf of us. So it's, a, it's sacrificial. This is talking about his vicarious atonement upon the cross. He died in place of us on the cross. Again, this is one of those places where you can just stop and just meditate on this if And if we could just meditate upon that and conduct ourselves in accordance with the gospel because of this truth, the point of the sermon is done. All of us have had people do sacrificial things for us, right? Maybe you've done sacrificial things. But when people do sacrificial things for you, maybe they give up time to spend time watching your kids so you can have some time to rest. Maybe they paid for a meal or a cup of coffee for you. Uh, maybe they've, they've helped you financially or they've just uh, shown you a, 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 just a, a sacrificial deed of kindness. We naturally feel indebted. We naturally feel grateful. We should if we don't. And we want to kind of, reciprocate. That's a natural thing. We should want to reciprocate when people do a sacrificial deed for us. You wanna, by, and that we want to just show our appreciation to them. How much more then? For the one who laid down his life to save us. Who gave us a gift that none of us could have ever given. That no one else in this world could have given us. And Jesus Christ did that for us. And that should be motivation. But there's more here in this verse. Christ gave himself for a very specific purpose. For, in fact, a twofold purpose that we find. First of all, he gave himself to redeem us. And this is basically to save us. To redeem means to to ransom someone, to set someone free, to pay the price necessary to free someone from a power, from slavery. And in this case, Christ paid the price to free us from the power of every lawless deed that we have committed. He came to set us free from sin. Not just sin in general, but from every lawless deed. It only takes one sin before a holy God, before an infinitely holy God. For us to deserve an eternal judgment of God's wrath it's separated from him in hell forever. Just one is enough to condemn us. But each time we sin, each time you sin, it is earning for yourself another eternal life in hell with no hope of parole. Each and every sin, every lawless deed does that. And Christ came to set us free, to pay the price, to ransom us from not just one sin, the today's sins, or yesterday's sin, or tomorrow's sin, or the sin you're committing even now, but from every lawless deed. Every single time we act as if there is no law of God, we need to obey. Every single time we sin, Christ came to redeem us, to ransom us from that penalty, the penalty of that sin. And that's precious. He paid for it with his own life, as we read in other places like 1 Peter 1 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. Bill Gates cannot earn his way to heaven. He's a filthy rich man, full of money. Warren Buffett cannot earn his way to heaven with all his money. All the wealthiest men in this world cannot put their money together and earn their salvation for any, even one of them. All of us, rich or poor, are bought and redeemed with one thing, with precious blood, verse 19, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. All of us are bought, bought by the same blood. We're redeemed by the same blood of Christ, only his blood. So he came to redeem us, but also he came to purify us. It's the second purpose for a sacrificial death. That is to cleanse us, to sanctify us, to set us apart. He cleanses us for a special use. We, he cleanses us so that we might be a people for his own possession. You know, if maybe you want to, you, you're thirsty, you know, you, you have no clean dishes in your house. So you go out to your backyard. And you say, oh, look, there's a cup that's in the ground there lying there. Oh, there's yeah, some snails and stuff like that. You just take it up and, and you just like go home and just pour some water. in Oh, what well, is great, you know. No, before you can use it, you got to cleanse it, right? So that's, that's, that's a great illustration of our, our lives, okay? But it's much filthier than having a snail in it or a slug. Our lives were filthy because of our sin, but God picked us up, clay vessels that we are, earthen jars, just, you know, clay pots. And he took us and he cleanses us from sin. He sets us apart for his own use. This is my cup. This is my earthen jar. You are mine. And because we're his, he has us for a purpose, a purpose. He cleanses us for this purpose so that we might be zealous for good deeds. That we might be basically passionate for good deeds, eager for good deeds, to do good works. The same truth is taught in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Christ gave himself for us on the cross so that we would no longer be known for our lawless deeds, but that we would be known for our good deeds. Is that what your life is known for? Lawlessness, lawless deeds, or good deeds? Does your life manifest the good deeds that you've been saved for? Are you manifesting in a love for God, a love for your neighbors, caring for them, being kind to them? Is it manifesting being obedient to Christ's commands to make disciples, to pray, to, to, be a, to, to long for the milk of the word? Or is our lives reflecting a desire to, in whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God? These and, these and many other ways that the scripture tells us are ways that we do good deeds, we're to do it not just on Sundays and Fridays when we're at church, but we're to do it when we go out in our workplaces, when we're in our homes, when we're in our community. If it does not, if our lives do not reflect this, then we need to reflect more upon the gospel again, upon the grace of God that has been, that appeared for us, who gave himself for us, so that we would be zealous, passionate. What are you passionate about? Oh, I'm passionate about, you know, sometimes you kind of, you know, we to be pure creative, they're on their, you know, your Facebook or Instagram profiles. Oh, I'm passionate about strawberries and uh, New Zealand and, uh, you know, falling rain on the roof of my car. I, I love that. I'm passionate about those things. No, you know, sorry if that's you, okay. <laughs> you know, I got like cats on mine, so all right, so it's just... You know, if we could just put on, if, if we had a spiritual Instagram or Facebook profile, it just say, I'm passionate about good deeds for Jesus Christ. You know, you know that's what we should be passionate about. That's my zeal. That's what I'm about. Uh, don't, all, don't all of you get on Instagram and Facebook right now and start changing your profile, okay? But do that later on. Okay? <laughs> no. Well, as we conclude then, these are four reasons why we ought to be zealous for good deeds. They're just motivated. They're different aspects of the grace of God that should encourage us to want to live godly in Christ Jesus, to, be, to conduct ourselves fitting of sound doctrine. Paul ends this chapter in verse 15 with basically a reiteration of verse 1. He says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You're to speak the things fitting for sound doctrine, and he says, These things speak. Same verb. Don't just speak them, though. Exhort them. I've told you what they are, brothers and sisters. You can read them again for yourself. But I exhort you to conduct yourselves befitting a sound doctrine. If need be, may we reprove one another when we don't conduct ourselves according to sound doctrine. And this comes with all authority because this is not from mine, but it comes from God's word. And so let no one disregard this. Not me, not you, not any believer here who has been bought for and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ we do this? not because we have to. We want to conduct ourselves, be fitting us on doctrine for the glory of Christ, because he's coming again. He's going to come again soon, and that changes exactly how I want to live. I want to live for him. I want to live for him. And he came to instruct me in this way. This is exactly what he told us to live, how to live. So let's live this way. Let's say no to sin and say yes to living sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And if we forget, just go back to the gospel. It's because Jesus Christ came to give us salvation and he did it by dying on the cross in place of us. That's reason enough. Amen, brothers and sisters? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us to send your son to appear, bringing salvation to all men. Thank you, Father, that he came instructing us, teaching us how how we can say no to ungodliness and worldly desires and how we can live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this world. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the, the wonderful promise and the example of uh, the, the wonderful promise of the gospel that was accomplished on the cross when Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Our salvation is secure because of him. And Lord, because of that, so our salvation being secure, we want to live. Our, we want to live for you. We want to live as, so that the world might know what Christ has done and who he is that he is both Savior and God, and that he calls all men to repent and believe. Lord, may I cause that to be our message as we go forth this week, wherever we go, to lunch, to games, to, the, to, to, to our families, on our, to work, to school, uh, even on our vacation, Lord. Cause us to be a people that manifests the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of Christ and the glory of you. These things we pray in Jesus' name.